Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. Hello, my name is Mark Arlapage. And before we get on with the show, I wanted to share a quick little teaser from a new show launching soon at our new home, Gable Media. Hi there, I'm Evan Troxell. Welcome to my podcast about how technology is changing the architectural profession. We're in this tiny little village of our own technology and the rest of the world is just kind of accelerating away. So can we take some of the benefit of that technology that's been developed in these other sectors and like bring it back at AC so we're not in this cul-de-sac that we've created of our own tools. The biggest shock to most of our graduates once they go out in the world is, you know, you're working with others uh, through the process because that in school is something that they don't necessarily have to do unless you have a multidisciplinary studio, let's say. So look, we're gonna work on automating high quantity items. Yeah, there's a lot of bathrooms that get designed in the world. So we're, we're gonna focus on stuff like, can we automate fixture counts and keep people accountable to what's an IBC just from the get go? You know, trying to automate the stuff that is annoying, like life safety compliance, so the architects can focus more on on design solutions. It's the Troxel Podcast, broadcasting from Gable Media. The Troxel Podcast, launching this Tuesday, June 23rd at Gable Media. Learn more at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Hello, my name is Mark R. LePage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each and every week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. This is episode 328, Designing a World-Class Architecture Firm 
with former CEO of HOK, Patrick McLaney. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors, Gusto, easy online payroll, benefits, and HR built for modern small businesses like ours. FreshBooks, the cloud-based accounting software that makes running your small firm easy, fast, and secure. And RCAT, the online resource delivering quality building material information, CAD details, BIM specifications, and much more at RCAT.com. Patrick McLamey, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. It's very good to be here, Mark. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to have you here. I'm really excited to have this conversation. We had a little bit of a chat before we click record here, and uh, and you and I are very much on the same page. And and it's and it's interesting. I, your background is is uh, is fascinating. Let me introduce let me introduce you. Let me let me let audience the audience know who you are. Um, and a little bit about your background, and then we'll get into a great conversation here. Uh, Patrick McLamey spent 50 years at HOK, rising from junior designer to CEO and witnessing the firm's growth from a single Midwestern office to 27 locations across the globe, offering architecture, interiors, engineering, planning, and more. And I would say if I just stopped there, it'd be like mind-blowing <laughs> was your background. But it, it gets better. Trained as an architect, Patrick is a self-taught executive who attributes his success to a, a, his ability to communicate clearly and his interest in boring things like financial metrics and digital standards that architects often ignore. Patrick's proudest association is with Building Smart International, which works to achieve open standards for the exchange of digital information in the building and infrastructure industries. He was a founding member of Building Smart in 1994, elected to a, as a fellow for his service in 2018, and serves as international chairman to this day. Patrick is a recognized thought leader who advocates leveraging technology to improve design. He's a featured speaker at many industry events, authored numerous national and international articles, and testified before Congress about the need for digital standards in the building industry. Patrick's new book, Designing a World-Class Architecture Firm, was written for us, small and medium-sized firms. So this is, uh, this is very appropriate to have Patrick join us today. I can't wait. I, my favorite part of this show that I do uh, is the origin story. I love going back to uh, learn where architects discovered architecture and what inspired them to become an architect. And I've been doing this for th over 300 episodes, and there's there's never the same story. You would think many architects think, oh, we all sort of knew, but every story is different. And so, Patrick, I would love to hear your story. So go back to as far as you want to go back. Um, where okay. did you discover your passion for architecture? What inspired you to to become an architect? Okay, thank you, Mark. I I will start at the beginning. Great. Uh, I I was uh, born and grew up uh, in in and near Alton, Illinois, which is a river town. It's on the Mississippi River, uh, about 20 miles upstream from St. Louis, Missouri. And uh, the area where I grew up was not farming country like a lot of Illinois. There's no corn grown there. It's, it's a floodplain, so it was very industrial. I grew up in a small industrial town outside of Alton uh, where they had uh, every imaginable dirty industry. Uh, oil refining, smelting, uh, steel making, and so on. Some of my favorite 
uh, activities as a child were working with my grandfather, who was a carpenter. Uh, and my grandfather was a self-taught carpenter. He built houses for a living. He designed them at his kitchen table with a homemade drafting board and a homemade T-square and a store-bought triangle. And um, I was fascinated with the drawing part of it. I also learned carpentry from my grandfather, helped him build two houses when I was a bit older. But as a youngster, I was fascinated by his drawing and asked him if I could draw a house on his dra drafting board. So he, he thumbtacked on another sheet of, of uh, tracing paper and showed me how to use the T-square and the triangle. And I began to draw house plans. How, how old were you in. about? I was uh, probably six, six years old. Yeah. And uh, uh, when people would ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I would immediately say, I want to be a carpenter because they get to draw house plans. Yeah. I did not know the term architecture. And uh, finally, uh, I learned what an architect was and basically made up my mind to be an architect probably by the time I was 10, once I understood what carpentry was and what architecture was. Um, but the idea of working with the hands to design something and then working with the hands again to build something is, uh, is a gift from my grandfather. Um, and uh, many of the lessons that he taught me are actually throughout my career I've been using, especially measure twice, cut once. Said, Grandpa, what is that? Why? We called him Pop. Why is that important? That if you measure twice and cut once, you'll probably get it right. If you if you measure once and cut, the board might be too short. Then you've wasted lumber and you've wasted time because you might have to go get some more lumber from the lumber yard. So don't do that. So he taught me the rudiments of uh, having an efficient, effective process. I didn't know it at the time, right. but it's a lesson that comes back to me many times. So um, uh, I enrolled at the University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, and, uh, uh, and actually struggled with the architecture curriculum, not with the math and the science and the engineering, but with the design. The design professors, most of whom had never practiced, were filled with what I call architect speak, and I did not understand it. It was, and it took me um, a couple of years until I finally found a, had a, a, a critic professor who was very kind and sat me down and said, let's design a house together. Well, that was something I'd learned from my grandfather. And he said, let's design it for me and my wife. And so we had, that's actually what I did for a semester. And I learned things like, oh, if I'm in the bedroom, I'd like the bedroom to be on the east side of the house so that the sun will come in in the morning. And uh, I learned details such as he has to get up at night to go to the bathroom. So his side of the bed needs to be closest to the master bath. And uh, that actually began to teach me rudiments about design that I had not understood. That design is more than a pretty face. Design is something that actually works, that is useful, and that helps people with their lives, whether it's living in a house or working in an office or what have you. Um, so uh, then I was just on fire. Then I wanted to be the world's greatest designer, but I needed a job. So when I graduated from school, um, 
I interviewed, this is actually maybe useful for some of your, your audience. I interviewed um, in those days, um, the, ma the magazines were all filled with stories about how great the, the firms from Boston were. So I drove my VW Bug, which was the car of choice in those days, to Boston and interviewed with a number of firms there. And uh, I remember one interview in particular with Cambridge Seven, yeah. a noted firm of the time. This is the late and, '60s you're talking about. Uh, yes, it's the late '60s. Yeah, uh, 1967. Um, and I was, and I was, I was told, well, we don't have any openings now, but if you'd like to come and work as an unpaid intern for six months, we might be able to get you a job later. Well, I didn't have six months of money. I I was out of money. School was finishing. I needed a job and I needed it now. So a friend of mine had graduated a year ahead of me and had gone to work for HOK in St. Louis, which was the founding office and the only office. And I called him, I said, Bill, how's HOK? How, how's it feel? He said, it's fantastic. Things are happening here and it's like a great big family. And he said, I could get you an interview with Gio Obata, who was the O of HOK and the designer, if you would if you would like to come down for an interview. So of course I got my Volkswagen Beetle and went to the interview. And uh, Gio, uh, Japanese American, uh, interesting story about him, which I can tell if we want, but uh, Gio looked at my portfolio. And in those days, architects carried around big, giant, oversized portfolios that, uh, because we didn't have things like computers and PowerPoint and so on. And uh, he flipped through my portfolio, but he mostly was interested in me. And after asking me a few questions, he grabbed my arm and he said, I want you to work for me just as soon as you're out of school. And we've got a new big project starting to design a new set of super high schools in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I want you to work directly under me. What do you say? And uh, I was bowled over. What an opportunity. To have somebody say, I want you, instead of having to beg for a job, which was my experience at Cambridge 7. So I accepted the job, but I, I wasn't thrilled to go to St. Louis because I had grown up there in that area. Right. You're trying to escape. I was trying to get out. Yeah. Um, but that was a job. Do you know? So, do you know what he saw in you that he wanted you so quickly and and so and that he wanted you for himself? Well, he told me later, because of course I and he's still living. He's the only one of the founders, but he said he saw in me character and a real burning interest. Mm -hmm. uh, both things, you know, you can teach somebody how to work. You can teach somebody techniques and so on. What's their character? And uh, he saw in that in me something. Yeah. And um, he saw that burning desire. I wanted to be something. I didn't know quite what. And I thought, well, I'll work for HOK for a couple of years, get my license, it'll be good experience. And then I'll go out west somewhere and uh, maybe start my own firm and become the next Frank Lloyd Wright, which is the dream many of us have. Right. Um, but it turned out that um, every time I got the itchy foot, the firm gave me more opportunity. And that's part of the story. 
that um, I had that itchy foot two or three times in my early years. Um, once I, I, I took a, a uh, an auto trip to and went to uh, to Colorado to the mountains and uh, was in Boulder, Colorado, and I loved the town right up close against the mountains and it, the university town and it was it was the air was clean. Uh, the sky was blue instead of kind of gray blue in in St. Louis. And uh, so I, uh, you, you can't tell the phone company I did this, but I, I ripped the, I went to the yellow pages in the phone booth. And for the younger people, that's something that we used to do, <laughs> that you had to go to the phone book to find architects. Yeah, it's I the, Goog- the, the Google of the time. That's right. That was the Google of the time. And I, I found the listings for architects in Boulder and ripped the yellow pages out of the phone book, thinking that once I went back to St. Louis, I'd, I'd write to these firms and see if they had any openings, because I had really fallen in love with Boulder. And this is after you you had the job with HFS? Yes, I had the job for a year. Yeah. And um, and so I before I ever got a chance to do that, Gio's secretary came by and said, we'd like to send you to Pittsburgh to a project office. And we'd like you to be the design liaison between the project office and the and the mother office in St. Louis. And that sounded like a pretty big job to me and something that was really interesting. So I did that for a year. And uh, the most memorable part of that year was, uh, first of all, Pittsburgh is a beautiful city. It's not the smoky industrial city of old. It's it's it, but it's got beautiful top, uh, topography. I visited Falling Water every season religiously, which is outside of east of town. You have to see Falling Water in all four seasons to truly appreciate what a magnificent uh, house that is. Um, and uh, I learned a ton about working with people and having this liaison role because we had not one associate architect, but four, four firms. So it was quite a mix. and. Um, I thought, well, maybe I'll live in Pittsburgh. This is a pretty nice place. And then my immediate boss, Bill Valentine, came to Pittsburgh. We played racquetball, which is what we did at the local Y. And we were sitting there in the locker room dripping with sweat when Bill said, we've just opened a new little office in San Francisco. And the the office is is uh, not work, actually doesn't have any California work, but uh, they made a connection with a firm in Anchorage that's flooded with work because the Alaska pipeline was just approved. And I'd like you to come to San Francisco. And what, to help you with the work? No, I want you to move there. That's a permanent new office. I had never been west of Boulder, Colorado. I knew that California was this far away sunny place, but I honestly wasn't sure was it L.A. or San Francisco that had the Golden Gate Bridge? I just didn't know. Yeah. So I was transferred there in 1970, and uh, that was the first branch office that HOK had opened. There had been a few little project offices that were temporary just for the work, but nothing like a permanent new office. So um, we started there with no local work, just work in Alaska, and within within two weeks of landing in San Francisco, which I thought was the most gorgeous city in the planet, and might still arguably be that, where water is not brown, it's blue, 
and buildings are not black, they're white. Um, yeah, but within two weeks, I was on my way to Anchorage and then to the to these little bush towns in Alaska, helping villages build community centers, little hospital project, I did a little local jail. The jails were mostly used as sleep-off centers when some of the local in a, uh, Eskimo people got too much to drink. They gave them a warm place to sleep. So uh, it was an adventure from start to finish, and I had no idea of the journey I was on. And that was at the very beginning, so 1970, yes. just a few years after you, yes. your first position. Yes. And um, uh, so I, uh, th there was a fork in the road time for me. I was a designer until about 1973, and... Um, my immediate boss again, Bill Valentine, uh, who's now a lifelong friend. Bill uh, called me into his office and he, sa he said, you know, you're a good designer, but you have great gifts for organizing. And uh, we think you'd make a terrific project manager. And if you do become a project manager, know that you won't lead the design work. You can have an input to it because we, we practice architecture as a team here but you won't lead it, but you'll get a chance to do many other good things. And if you accept this position, we're going to give you a raise. Well, I was really interested in that. I had a growing young family. So um, uh, I became a project manager. And uh, from there, it seemed like, a, it, it took decades, but it seemed like a very quick journey from there to a managing principal in the San Francisco office then I had a end of time as uh, we had by then HOK was spreading all across the planet. People were were used to flying in airplanes for for work, um, so I was I spent a lot of time in in uh, Asia, from uh, Tokyo and Beijing all the way down to to Singapore, Jakarta, uh, and uh, eventually became a member of the the executive committee, which is the the group in HOK that's responsible for day-to-day -day leadership. And then uh, in 2003 became the CEO. And along the way, along the way, uh, Mark, learned how to get out of trouble when we got into trouble. Uh, because there was, I don't care how big you are or how small you are, everybody has a crisis. A client stops paying, a client stops work. There's a major event like we have now with the coronavirus, where all of a sudden all the work activity stopped. You remember 9-11? Yeah. Everybody stopped. And the first thing that clients do when there's economic uncertainty, uh, uh, recession, uh, the 2008 banking crisis, clients say, oh, we have to stop spending money. Where can we stop? Well, let's stop paying our architect. Let's stop that new expansion plan that we had and you can't blame them that's the that's the way it is and we are the tail of the dog when um, when the nation gets a cold architect get pneumonia so how do you deal with that as a firm is something i spent a lot of time working on uh, getting hok navigated through that and i realized as i did that the founders had already given me some tools um, uh, probably the most significant was a diversified practice. Uh, H, O, and K, George Helmuth and 
just to, let me just talk about George Helmuth a minute, the founder, the H yeah. of HK. He was the son of an architect in St. Louis that practiced around 1900 when HOK at that time, when, when St. Louis at that time was the fourth largest city in the United States. We had just had uh, in St. Louis, just had the, the, a World's Fair to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the Lewis and Clark expedition and the Louisiana Purchase. So uh, he grew up in St. Louis and watched his father and his uncle, a firm called Helmuth and Helmuth, struggle and lurch from crisis to crisis. And it, it played out the same way every time. One of the partners would find a job. They did a lot of schools. They were both Catholics, so they did a lot of work for the Catholic Church. And they built, they designed houses for well-off St. Louis families. But they, they, it was feast or famine for them. George described it, George Helmuth, like a roller coaster. We got a job, we hire some draftsmen, about, and you know, we work on that project. And about the time that the draftsmen are all trained up and you've got a pretty efficient operation, the job is finished, there's no new work, so we lay everybody off. It back down to the two brothers again. And he was seared by that, that uh, experience because his personal family had times of plenty and times of not quite famine, but belt tightening. Yeah. So he said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna work on, there's gotta be a way to have a firm not have this roller coaster ride. And I'm gonna figure that out. He graduated from college, Washington University in St. Louis in 1930, which is just the beginning of the Great Depression. He went to his father and uncle and said, okay, I'm ready to come to work. They said, we don't have any work, we can't hire you. So he wrangled a job as a junior architect for the city of St. Louis designing comfort stations and, uh, and uh, things for the city parks, park benches and whatnot, and took that job for six years. And once a year, he would go back to his father and say, can you take me on? Finally, after seven years, his father said, you know, young George, we, we don't know how to run a good practice. We still can't take you on. You need to get out of St. Louis, go to a bigger city and find somebody that knows how to run a really good practice and join with them and learn from them. And that's what he did. He left St. Louis and went to Detroit and found a job with Smith Henchman and Grills, the, the, the predecessor to the Smith group of today. And Smith Henchman and Grills were busy doing uh, a lot of factory work for the, the General Motors and Ford and Chrysler serving the auto industry. It wasn't glamorous work, but it was work. And then, uh, so he joined them and found that they, even though they were much larger than Helmuth and Helmuth, they, they suffered from the same problem. They didn't have any long-term strategy to keep their people, which he thought was the most crucial of all. That if you have, if you have key people that you've trained, you need to be able to keep them on so that you can have an efficient um, uh, efficient practice, and so that these younger people that you train can eventually replace you. And even at Smith Hinchman, they didn't have it call all figured out. They feasted on the, the auto industry work while it was there, but they didn't have an idea about how to fill in the backlog so that they, there was a steady stream of work so they could keep good people. 
So while he was there, he wrote a 23-page single-spaced paper giving his strategy, and it was basically pretty simple. That people are a most important thing about a practice. You have to have good people, and they have to be trained to work in harmony with each other to do the best work. Second, in order to keep good people, you have to have a steady stream of work. Therefore, you need to have continuous marketing. That was revolutionary. Yeah, in the architecture um, profession, that was unheard of back then. He was, we think, the first full-time marketing principal in any firm, but uh, can't prove that, but there's a good chance that it was true. And he said, also, instead of just doing one type of work, let's say schools, architects have to be as diverse as they can possibly, possibly be. Uh, and uh, so, because what happens is schools, the school work runs out. The baby boom is over, school work stops. You'd better have something else to fill in behind. So he practiced diversity while the, the while, and, and there's, a, there's many other chapters here, but basically diversify your practice, learn how to do everything, design everything, and learn how to work in different geographies. Now, for a small firm, I think it's even true today, it was revolutionary then because air travel, commercial air travel, was just beginning. But small or large firms that are nimble can work um, anywhere. Look at the internet. Look at look at the, how we're all connected here. Right. Uh, if you have something to sell, look beyond the boundaries of your own town or city. So geographic diversity, diversity of building type, and then finally, diversity of service. Uh, sometimes people don't need architects. They might need somebody to help program. They might need landscape architecture. They might need interior design work. They might need uh, planning and so on. So learn how to do all of these things. Get yourself a diverse professional offering so that if architecture is slow, maybe you can carry on with planning or programming work for a period of time. He called that his depression-proof firm strategy. And that was well in place by the time I got to HOK. The firm was booming. There were 150 people in St. Louis when I joined in 1967. The firm was 12 years old, started in 1955. And uh, I, of course, lived through the, going out to making the first branch office there are 27 locations today, but it was, it was a, and did we make mistakes? Absolutely all the time. Uh, here's one, firm-wide culture. It doesn't do any good to buy another firm uh, to start, you know, to, to gain a foothold in another city if the other firm doesn't have a culture like your own firm. HOK was a culture of let's collaborate fully on the inside so that we can compete fully on the outside. And uh, Helmuth always wanted to have a, an office in St. Louis, in uh, New York, excuse me. Uh, he said, anybody who's anybody has to be in the Big Apple. And he bought a firm, Conan Jacobs, which was a, a moderately well-known firm doing some uh, fair amount of commercial architecture, office buildings and whatnot in Manhattan, and he bought them uh, when when uh, the firm was actually on its way to the, the, the partners wanted to retire. The last 
uh, Bob Jacobs, the last founder, wanted to retire and didn't have a way to do it. So we bought this firm, he bought this firm, and they were completely and totally different culturally than HOK. And they thought of HOK as country bumpkins from St. Louis coming to the Big Apple telling them what to do. It was a struggle. It was a, it was a, finally we had to actually let go some of the people in New York that were the most adamant and uh, move the office out of the, the old Con and Jacobs location to a new location, new office space, um, just to change the setting. So that it be, it, then it finally began to become an HOK office, but that was the wrong way to do it. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, you have to have a strategy like Helmuth had of diversifying. You also have to have an intact culture so that you're all working as a team. Architecture is, in case nobody's noticed, a team sport uh, because it requires the cooperation of more than one person. Now, it may be that in the dark of night, when the designer is, is creating something, that that can be a lonely experience. That can be a solitary, not lonely, but solitary, be quite exciting time. But think of it like this. Once that design is, is once the concept of the design is put forward by the designer, whether you're a one person officer or a thousand people, then the designer needs help to get that building, that, that concept put into vision and then finally made suitable for a contractor to build it. Each step takes more people. So uh, even though designing may be with a small team and even at HOK with very large projects, design it tends to be small teams. But once that, once that small team has made the concept, the project gets big with lots of people and you have to have that culture of teamwork to help put that project uh, forward in the best way. So uh, I, I do think architecture is a team sport um, and that culture is an important thing. And it's easy to accomplish in one office with a few people. It's harder than nails to do in a large firm with many offices, which is one of the things that I had to learn how to put back together again when I became the CEO. So well, that... there, I, let me take a breath and have you <laughs> ask me a couple of questions. Week after week, episode after episode, you hear me talk about some great companies who provide outstanding products and services to help us small firm architects build better businesses. Gusto, FreshBooks, and RCAT have been dedicated supporters of the Entree Architect community and this podcast for years. Every episode, I ask you to check them out and thank them for supporting us because with their support, we've been able to grow this podcast and in turn, we've been able to grow the Entree Architect platform, serving the global community of small firm architects like you. So today, I want to stop and thank you, the Entree Architect community, for supporting them, our loyal platform sponsors. And I want to ask you to make an extra effort this week to connect with each sponsor, Gusto, FreshBooks, and RCAT. Using the links that I'll share in a minute, you can find their contact forms and thank them I mean like literally thank them because as the economy shifts and slows, marketing budgets are shrinking. 
companies are going to need to choose where they spend their marketing dollars. And we want them to spend them here with us supporting the Entree Architect community. So let me take a little bit of time here and share a little bit of information for each sponsor and the link for, for where you can connect and then pause this episode right now and connect with each sponsor. Gusto, FreshBooks, and RCAP. Small businesses across the country love running payroll with Gusto. Gusto automatically files and pays your taxes. It's super easy to use and you can add benefits and management tools to help take care of your team and keep your business safe. It's loyal, it's modern, and let's face it, we all need some help with our payroll and taxes. Gusto is making it easy so we can focus on being architects. So give Gusto a try for free for three months. The link to give Gusto a try is entrearchitect.com slash Gusto. That's the link to connect and say thank you for supporting Entree Architect. Visit entrearchitect.com slash Gusto today. FreshBooks wants you to know that you're not alone. FreshBooks has been supporting small businesses and solopreneurs, and specifically, they've been supporting us here at Entree Architect Podcast for years. They know what it's like, how lonely it may be working from home. They know what it's like when times get tough. And they know that right now, as we all face this crisis together as a global community, we all need to do our part. So FreshBooks is responding and offering an unprecedented offer. Now, when you join FreshBooks, the cloud-based accounting software, you will receive 60% off for six months. 60% off for six months. Just visit entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks, entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks, and enter Entree Architect in the How Did You Hear About Us section. Don't forget to do that. That's 60% off their regular price for six months. So visit entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks, sign up for that 60% off, then go find their contact form and thank FreshBooks for being such a longtime loyal supporter of Entree Architect. That's entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks. As you and your team are working from home, are the logistics of putting together a project daunting when no one is in the same room? RCAT has a solution for you and it's free. RCAT's Charette allows you to manage projects and specification documents online with multiple team members. Discuss products, configurations, outline specs, project photos, documents, and so much more all on one page, along with the ability to access product information, specifications, CAD, BIM, and the patented spec wizard from anywhere in the world. Charette can help your firm get more done, no matter where in the world you might be. You can even promote your firm's project when you're done. And like all of our cat solutions, it's completely free to use. So check it out right now at entrearchitect.com slash rcat. That's entrearchitect.com slash rcat. A-R-C-A-T. Entrearchitect.com slash rcat. And don't forget to thank rcat for the years and years of their support for the Entree Architect community. So thank you, the Entree Architect community, for supporting them, our loyal platform sponsors, Gusto, FreshBooks, and RCAT. I love interviews like this. 
<laughs> it makes my job so easy. Such a fascinating story. I, you know, and I have so many different questions, but I wanted, I wanted to um, ask you because you grew through HOK from, from a junior draftsman all the way up to the CEO. So you've been in every position and you've experienced all these different uh, experiences as of growing a firm. And as you had mentioned, uh, having crises and leading through crises. And so you, you led HOK through the 9-11 crisis, correct? Yes. So <clears throat> we're in a, it's a very different crisis that we have today, but it's a, in many ways, a very similar crisis, especially for a firm like HOK, who was designing very large venues, you know, places with lots of people in them. I'm sure those projects, many of those projects stopped or dried up or, or changed significantly or yep. just was canceled. Yep. Um, we're experiencing that today as well, right? With this coronavirus, yes, are. people are, there's the economic impact that we're going to have is probably even greater than 9-11. Um, and the, the decisions that are being made in terms of uh, large areas of people, those things are also changing. So I wanted to ask your thoughts on what should architecture leaders be doing today where we yes. this this crisis has just begun, right? We've just sort of been, we're about a month into it here in the United States, where it's sort of yes. been been apparent to us all, um, and we're going to have to prepare for what's about to come. And so, right. what is your advice to uh, leaders of small firms and medium-sized firms? And I'm sure there are many large firm leaders listening to you as well today. Um, what do you? What do you say to the people who are in those positions today? What should they be considering at this moment? Sure. That's an excellent question. And of course, one that's on everybody's mind. Um, and it, let me just say first that this coronavirus, even though it's different, the economic impact on firms and on, on the economy is, is, is similar or the same as 9-11, as the 2008 uh, uh, economic meltdown, uh, they're, they're all similar. Businesses slow down and people say, how can I stop spending money and let's stop our design and construction process. Right. So the architect is the tail on the dog. What do you do? Well, first thing is you don't do nothing. If you're just sitting there wringing your hands, that's absolutely the worst thing you can do. And you said, uh, Mark, we're, this is early days. We're only into it a month, but the second day after the sequestration, thinking people would say, hmm, what do I need to do first and next? First thing I need to do is reach out to my clients. Uh, run toward your clients. They're the people that are your lifeline. Call them on the phone. How are you doing? What do you need? How's your family? And uh, the client might say, well, I'm sorry, but we have to stop the such and so project. So if you're, if you have a decent relationship with your client, you ask if you can hang on in some different way. Gee, we were just about to finish schematic design. Wouldn't it be better to let us finish this phase so that that's in the show on the, in the drawer, that's an old expression, but yep. so that that project is, is at us at a point where it could be, re, uh, it could be reactivated instead of being in mid phase and just stopping. So often a client will think about that, say, well, I guess that'd be okay. So uh, 
you do what you can do to rescue your projects or to extend them a little bit because this coronavirus, we're a month in, how many more months do we have? We don't know, but let's say two or three more months. Let's just say that. Yeah. You need to have a two or three month plan. And first one is how many clients can I hang on to that will allow me to extend three weeks, four weeks, six weeks to do the work. Second thing is, and this isn't a one shot, don't just call your client once, call them every week. How's it going? Is there any is there any movement on anything? Can we help you in other ways? Maybe you're now consolidating. Can we help you with your consolidation? Maybe doing some interior fit out or layout. Um, uh, maybe we can help program that new project that we've been talking about, which is a, a lower cost, but it, it keeps me, the architect, connected with you, my client. So first thing first is stay connected to those clients. Second, stay connected to your people. Your employees are going to be scared. If you're one, if you're a one person firm, you're probably scared, but giving into being afraid won't actually solve anything. You have to be bold. You have to step forward through the fear, the, the worry and say, okay, what do I need to survive? Well, first I need to work at home. Uh, that's, that's pretty clear. So are my people, am I equipped to work at home? Do I have the right connection, internet connection? Do I have decent equipment at home that will allow me to actually continue to work? And if I, if I don't, I better get on the line with Amazon or somebody and get some equipment. Are my people equipped? So yes, they are. Let's say they are. If they're not, you need to work on that. And then in the same way that you called your clients, you need to talk to each employee. If you have a small firm, that's two or three or five phone calls, maybe a conference call, or maybe a Zoom meeting, or Skype or something else, so that you can reassure people, look, we're going through this, it's difficult, we're working on it. Be honest with your employees, don't, don't sugarcoat anything. Tell them exactly what you're, you're faced with. If client X, the, if your biggest client has just said, we're just, we just can't, go forward, tell them. They deserve to know. They're human beings. They're, they're your colleagues and your partners in this. And uh, if you have, uh, and you have to do some fast math, how, how long can I do this with the current employees? Do I have any cash in the bank? Do I have an ability to borrow money? Well, let's, I'm gonna say I'm hopeful that, um, people that are practicing out there have put some money aside. Every business, this is one of my lessons in the, in the book. One of my lessons is you need to have working capital. And uh, if you're using your credit card or your bank account as your working capital, that's not what I mean. You need to, to have, you need to set aside. If you haven't done this, it's okay. You can start now, even in a crisis. Start putting aside any money that you bring in, a little bit of it so that you can build up a fund that is used to smooth out the, the uneven bumps and grinds in billing clients and collecting money so that you can continue to make payroll, pay the rent and pay your other expenses. And, and not end up in debt. Not end up in debt, that, that's a really good idea. And I just, if I could just digress for one, even as big as HOK was, uh, when I became CEO, 
we had a line of credit with our bank, Bank of America. The line was maxed out. I won't tell you how many million it was, but it was a big number. And uh, the bank was on me to, you're, you're in violation of the bank cover. You know, you, you don't get to borrow money without having rules. And we had violated all the bank's rules. So I had the banker on my tail about, we need you to repay now or we're gonna pull your line of credit and demand our money back. And uh, so I began to work on what? Running a profitable operation and teaching my people how to bill and collect money from clients because that's the way it works. Clients are wonderful, uh, wonderful people because they're the people that, that pay us to design buildings and houses for them. But clients also need to pay us when we've done the work. And uh, we had to create some metrics around how we bill and how we pay, how we get paid, that were measures of the the value of, of the, if you, you haven't completed your job unless you've actually done the work, billed the client and collected the, collected the fee, then you've done your work. So yes, having working capital is really important. Then you finally get to the point where, well, I think I can last three months and keep my staff. Because I think going back to Helmut's um, uh, strategy, your people are everything. If you let all your people go, you're back down to yourself. Um, again, if you're a single practitioner, okay. But if you've got one, two, five, ten employees, if you let those people go and they've been with you, they add value to your practice. They allow your practice to be something different than if you were a single practitioner. Hang on to your people if you possibly can. How? Find out how long you can pay them. Let's say you can pay them for two months. I'm making all of this up. Each person has to figure it out. And you can pay them for two months, but let's say you think you need to, you need three months before things begin to loosen up and clients begin to pay again. Well, uh, I like, I favor the shared sacrifice route myself. Call your employees together and say, here's the story. Uh, we have cash to pay everybody for two months, but not three months. What I'm going to do is recommend that I'm going to take a 25% cut in my pay today, starting now. And I'd like everybody else to do that with me. Then if we all do that, and again, the 25%, 30% isn't as important as, well, you, you have to know what that number is, but yeah. it's math. Share that sacrifice with your employees and say, look, if we get through this together, the year is still, will still be, let's say half over. We can all work like crazy to repay ourselves with that and, and recoup that lost income so that by the end of the year, we're all made whole. That's a promise that you can make, but it's a promise based on shared sacrifice and then shared working together after the crisis has passed, because it will pass to uh, make yourself whole. The, the, the final, so if, that's what I would recommend. If you cannot possibly see your way to doing this without letting people go, well then do it, but do it very reluctantly and very carefully. Um, I never, I've, I've had to let people go, of course, but it's, uh, it's never the first choice, never. If somebody is uh, a valued employee and is doing good work, is helpful to the project teams and so on, that's like gold. 
if you can hang on. So uh, those are the things that I would be thinking about. I'd think about clients, I'd think about my people, and i think about cash and cash flow and what I have to do get, to get through this. But it will pass. The sun will come out again. In fact, it's a nice sunny day here in <laughs> California. I'm sure it'll I'm sure the sun will shine again. It will. I mean, if you look at where we were before this crisis occurred um, and how we've rolled past, you know, how we've we've grown uh, as a nation uh, and as a as a world since former crises, you know, 9-11 and and the the global economic crisis, um, we built up bigger and better than we had ever been. Um, Yes. And now we're here again with another crisis and we will find our way through this one and there'll be many benefits from going through this pain and there'll be many advances and yes there'll be some terrible horrible things that will happen as well because it's a health crisis as well and an economic crisis but we will grow out of it and we will uh, uh, find our way to the other side Um, I want I wanted to just go back to your uh, advice and your suggestions of of call your clients call your people uh, and then start putting together a plan, right? Is to sort of look yes. at how far along can you make it with what you have and then assuming, just making some assumptions because in this crisis, we really have no idea how long this will last. Um, but have to, in order to plan, you have to sort of define what you're planning for. So let's say three months. What happens when that money runs out? What do we do then? Are there some ways to look at that situation now? So let's say we have three months um, and uh, things are not getting better? Or is there some sort of metric that we can use to sort of track where we are in order to make some preliminary decisions on whether, you know, whether when are we going to need to bring in more more projects or yeah. start laying off people if, yes. if we get to that point? Is there some way to sort of plan that ahead of time? Uh, of course there is. And, um, and again, uh, um, it's, it's all in the book. Uh, when I when I was before I was C, CEO I was COO the first one in the firm's history and learned that we didn't actually have simple financial metrics that would allow architects people that don't think about numbers all the time how can how do I know if I'm on track how do I know if I'm overspending or underspending on my job in my office as a firm and I I uh, worked with our controller and our CFO, two financial bean counter guys who had uh, the accounting that we did as a firm was not for us, it was for our accountants and our tax uh, preparers. And uh, architects were bedazzled and befuddled by it. So I drilled down into the numbers, I call it drilling down, asking a thousand and one questions, actually sat in a room with these two financial guys for uh, several days and came up with some very, very simple metrics. And here, here they are. For the, this is true for HOK. It's probably close to true for anybody. If your payroll, if you're, if you're making $1,000 a month income, I'm just using a number, yep. your payroll better not be more than $500. Not your total payroll, forget fringe benefits, just what's, if, if somebody says I'm earning $100,000 a year, that's the payroll. I know there's fringe benefits on top, but if simple rule of thumb, if I'm paying somebody $10 an hour, I better have $20 a fee to cover all the other stuff. 
I can squeeze on that a little bit, but a healthy firm, the salaries should not be any more than half of the fees. So if I know that from talking to my clients that my fees in the next three months are going to be uh, $20,000, I better not have a payroll more than 10 or that's when I have to ask people to pay, take pay cuts or I have to have $10,000 of savings somewhere in a, in a bank account that I can tap that's uh, that's rainy day fund. Right. So that's the 50% rule is what I call that. Yep. Again, most people don't get, uh, never get to this, but it's so simple. That's the first one. Second one is this. How about looking ahead? How much, how much work do I need in my pipeline to know that I can afford to keep my people? Well, again, I sat down in this room with my CFO and my controller, and we ran through all the numbers for all the different offices and came up with a, a very simple metric. I need 10 months of backlog in order to have steady state. What's that mean? If I'm, if my firm is, is, uh, spending, um, a thousand dollars a month, just to use simple math. Yep. I need $10,000 of backlog work that I have under contract from a client that is yet unearned. And every month that I work on that, on that backlog, I, I earn that money down. So I need to have about 10 months of backlog in order to know that I'm okay. If I have less than 10 months, if I have eight months or six months, I am shrinking. I might not know it yet, but I'm shrinking. If I have 12 months of backlog, I'm growing and I have to think about and prepare for adding staff. So again, anybody can do this. If you have contracts, again, some of the contracts might be in suspension. So you have to use some good judgment here. But if you have contracts that are worth 10 times what your monthly cost is, not payroll, this is total cost. Again, not to get too complicated. Payroll is half of total cost. I got $1,000 payroll. I got $2,000 a month I'm going to spend to run my office. I better have 10 times that. I better have $20,000 of backlog in order for everything to work. If I don't, I better be prepared to shrink or go out and scramble for some right. more work. And that that's the way you can sort of look to the future and yeah. s- start making some yeah. preliminary decisions on w- we either need to fill that pipeline in order to get back up to that 10 months yes. or we need to start preparing for the eventual shrinkage yeah. of your firm. Yes. And um, as big as HOK is, every single month we went through a backlog, a, te- a 10 month rule, uh, um, with the accounting would prepare a 10 month rule for each office so that we knew whether an office was shrinking or growing. In our case, we had a benefit, which is if one office was growing and another was shrinking, we could actually swap work. Yeah. And, uh, if you're a single office, you probably can't do it. Although you might find another office that's run by your good friend across town, right. Be a great time to share some work and swap work back and forth if you can make it work. Uh, I think that's better, frankly, than lending employees to somebody else um, because once they lend out to somebody else, you might not get them back. Right. But but so, today uh, but today with the internet, it's very easy to build relationships with people and other firm owners 
uh, and be able to establish some some agreements that you know you can share work much like HOK did with their multiple offices yeah. you can establish relationships with other independent firms and yeah. be able to do that same thing yes and and the internet actually I think one huge advantage for the smaller firms is they are more nimble than the big ones you know HOK is like the ocean liner it takes a long time to turn small firms can turn on a dime and leveraging your your uh, the internet leveraging an, an ability to work uh, uh, virtually across you know different states different countries um, there's an amazing amount of, of uh, nimbleness and I think being nimble right now is a really good idea for, for any firm but the small ones have a natural advantage in the nimble category because they can turn quickly you can decide next you can decide tomorrow what your five person firm is going to do it we can't quite do that at a big firm like HOK yeah uh, Patrick, this has been a fantastic conversation. We went longer than we typically do because I just I just want to absorb as much information from you as I can. Yeah. And so I could I could go on for hours hours more, um, but we really need to to uh, to respect our time because our listeners. Uh, I want to be able to make sure that we can package this into an episode here. So um, I w- I would love to have you come back someday and continue this conversation with other other uh, uh, metrics and other other ways of continuing to uh, help small firms succeed. So maybe we'll... we'll I'd be very pleased to, to be uh, to be back again, Mark. Yeah, that would be a lot enjoyed of fun. It. Uh, Patrick, before we, before we leave, uh, I would love for you to answer the one question that I ask everybody. Uh, what is one thing that a small firm architect can do today, right now, to build a better business for tomorrow? And that, that, that I've been asking that question for over 300 episodes. And yeah. it's, it's interesting now, especially today, that becomes even more critical than it's ever yes. been, that, that question. So I would love to have your thoughts on it. Yes. Uh, well, of course, today, everything is overshadowed by the coronavirus and yeah. the sequestration that we're all going through. Uh, but I would say, um, you know, maybe in an, in an easier time, it would be become great designers or something. But I would say now, can you find new ways of being useful or helpful to your clients? things that maybe you haven't thought of before, but that you can actually help your clients succeed in doing, especially because they're suffering too. And if you can be clever and thoughtful about that, you may well be the one that ends up on your feet when we get through all of this and come out on the sunny side, uh, standing upright. Yeah. So that's what I would say. That's fantastic advice. That, that goes right back to your number one, call your clients. Right. Yeah. Because you're going to get some information back from them and from that information. And if they're saying, well, I think we're going to put this on hold. Well, then you can sort of have be prepared with these other services that you might be able to provide at this time. Indeed. Great, great advice. Um, our new friend's name is Patrick McLamey. You can find more information about Patrick and his new book, uh, Designing a World Class Architecture Firm. We'll have a link to the book as well on the show notes. You can find out all the information at mclamey.com. We'll have a link to that as well. Um, he's on LinkedIn as well. You can reach out to him on LinkedIn and connect to Patrick on LinkedIn. We'll have links to everything on the show notes. Patrick, this has been one of my favorite conversations. I love hearing uh, the stories of architects, and you have had such a fantastic journey. Um, and so I really appreciate you coming here and sharing a little bit of it here at Entree Architect Podcast. 
Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it, Mark. You have been listening to episode 328. The link to the show notes and the link to share this episode with a friend is entrearchitect.com slash episode 328. And this is certainly one of those episodes that you need to share. I'm making this one. I'm making this one a requirement. It is your obligation to share this episode. EntreeArchitects.com slash episode 328. Our profession needs to hear this conversation that I had with Patrick today. And don't forget to buy the book. The book is called Designing a World-Class Architecture Firm, The People, Stories, and Strategies Behind HOK. It's a fascinating read. And as you heard today, Patrick is a fantastic storyteller. So it is one for your collection. We'll have a link to purchase the book at the show notes as well, entrearchitects.com slash episode 328. My friends, be healthy, be happy, be safe, be secure. Thank you for listening today. Now more than ever, love, learn, and share what you know. Have a great week. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. 
It's not just a podcast. It's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.